Today on the Cineos Health Podcast, we'll be talking about rare diseases and real-world evidence. I'm Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. I'll be joined by Michelle Leeds and rejoined by Alistair McDonald from our real-world evidence group. We'll be talking about how the laws are changing, how regulators are viewing real-world evidence, and how payers care or don't care about the evidence that's generated. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Real-world evidence and rare diseases next on the Cineos Health Podcast. Alistair McDonald, Michelle Leeds, welcome to the Cineos Health Podcast. Nice to be here. Thanks for having us. I've had you on the show before, Alistair. I think, Michelle, this is the first time we've had you on the show. Do you mind giving a little bit of your background? I'd be happy to. Here at Cineos Health, I counsel clients on public affairs communication strategies. To do that, I lean on a lot of my background as a lobbyist. I worked in D.C. for 15 years. I worked for a congresswoman from California, and then I worked at a law firm as a lobbyist, and I worked on a lot of healthcare policy issues in that role. So I lean on a lot of that background to help our clients with their messaging around the value of their companies, their products, and communicating to specifically policymaker audiences. That's the first time we've had a former lobbyist on the Cindy's Huff podcast. I'm excited, uh, a little scared, but excited. Uh, (laughs) Alistair, and just remind us your background. I know that we've talked before, but just for those that maybe haven't heard the previous episodes, what is your background? Hi, Jeff. I'm Alistair McDonald. I work in real-world evidence at Cindy's Health. I've been here for three years. My role is to work with our clients to think through the real-world evidence needs all the way from their initial ideas and concepts right through to the final delivery of the evidence and data that they require. I act as a subject matter expert, I would say. Prior to come to Senior Health, I worked in the pharmaceutical side of the business directly. Most notably, probably, I worked for AstraZeneca for around 16 years. There, I worked for a large period of time in the clinical development space, the phase one, phase three space. But lastly, I moved across to their medical evidence center, as it was called, to help with the delivery of real-world evidence at the global level for AstraZeneca. So I brought that understanding of developing a drug, both clinically but also commercially, from the pharmaceutical side and bring that expertise into the field. So today we're talking about your recent white paper out on real-world evidence and how that's now interacting with payers to develop value stories. I'm going to start from kind of a fastball right at your heads sort of place. Why does a payer really care about value when it comes to uh, rare disease? Rare diseases, despite the fact that they're very expensive, are a minuscule part of any line item in a budget for a payer. So why should a payer care? Yeah, well, maybe I'll start, Michelle, if that's okay from my perspective. There's a couple of points about that, Jeff, actually. The first question is, do they care? Some of the evidence we generate in Senior Health, to your point, is that they don't really consider yet the rare disease space as being a priority for them. And when you consider some of the other significant medical conditions that they do have to take into consideration, whether it be the oncology sphere or cardiovascular sphere, one can have some understanding of that. But I think we are well aware of two components in the rare disease space. One is that some of the rare disease treatments that have been developed are extremely innovative and they're fantastic science. But of course, that comes at a cost. So we're seeing quite a lot of what would, I guess, the US term sticker shock around some of the pricing in this particular area. And of course, that raises some interest with peers to understand the value of those drugs as it relates to the pricing of them. I think the second thing is payers are beginning to understand that there is scope for a drug to move into the rare disease space, but once it's established itself on the market, it can expand into other indications. They may also be rare, 
but nevertheless you are expanding the market for that particular drug. And so there is some interest, I would say, from peers in understanding the value of therapies in general, including rare disease. But I would accept that it is still not the key priority in terms of cost containment at present in the US. Michelle, you have a different take on that, or am I being a little too doom and gloomy about payers actually caring about this stuff? <laughs> well, I do think that payers care about value. I just think that they're looking at it from a different perspective. We know that payers are already using real-world evidence in their own way. They're using medical claims data to make formulary decisions. So we know that that's already part of their process. But I think there are some things that have changed recently. For example, in 2018, the FDA issued some guidance that encourages some conversations between manufacturers and to share some of health economics data, real-world evidence data, with payers in pre-approval conversations. Of course, this is heavily regulated. For example, the audience for receiving this kind of information must be people who are making population-based healthcare decisions. I think you may have actually featured an episode on this topic a few months ago that may have gone into more detail on that. But now payers and hospital P&T committees can look at the same economic model as a manufacturer. For example, manufacturers are developing coverage cost calculators, and now they can actually go in and show those calculators to payers and explain the underlying assumptions. So this is one way in which manufacturers can be building more trust with payers and they can make this data more useful for them. Yeah, Michelle, I think that you're referring probably to the 21st Century Cures Act episode, which was... Mm, not last summer, but the summer before, I think, where we were reviewing how FDAMA, FDA 114, finally was able to work so that manufacturers could have pre-approval discussions as long as they talked about economic data or value-based data with payers. And that's now allowed, clearly allowed, as opposed to before when it was maybe in a gray area allowed, which kept people from actually having these discussions. So now we've got final guidance from the FDA on FDAMA 114 and how it's usable, which is basically hands are off, if I'm reading it, and certainly how it's being applied in practice, is that one can go in and, and have these discussions as long as they're really about data or value or about economic messaging. And what I'm hearing from you, Alistair, and you, Michelle, is not only is this possible, but it's something that payers are interested in, at least interested in to enough extent to be having these discussions. Do we have a good sense of why? It's not a big line item. I have an opinion about why payers are interested in having these kinds of discussions. It's a little cynical. <laughs> but why are payers interested with rare diseases in having these discussions? I think there's a couple of components to this one, Jeff. So the first is, let's not underrate the regulatory landscape is changing. So the regulators through the 21st Century Cures Act, as you described there, and indeed, actually, just, I think, a couple of weeks ago, late November, there has been a call to action for what's called Cures 2.0, the kind of new improved 21st Century Cures Act. And that additional input is being um, invited at the moment in terms of that. And we're seeing the regulators move significantly in terms of their acceptance and understanding of real-world evidence. If it's what is now being described as a regulatory-grade real-world evidence, the space where real-world evidence is being used, if the veracity and credibility of that data is increasing to the point where regulators are accepting it, and clearly peers are also now beginning to become more receptive to this. I think the issue with peers previously has been that they recognize that real-world evidence is there, particularly from, for example, claims data and insurance data and so forth. But I think there's always been some hesitation around um, certain key components of that data. So is it complete? Is it accurate? Can it be invalidated? And has the data been generated in an open and transparent? 
final way. And I think there's always been some concerns from peer groups around those elements of the real world evidence that's been put in front of them. Now that's a challenge still for us as an industry to overcome, but I think what we're beginning to see is movement in that space. So as an example, I think we all remember from last year when Roche made their investment in Flatiron as a company. So Flatiron is a company that holds a repository of real-world oncology data, and Roche invested significantly in that company. And the rationale they gave for it was that this data is of sufficient quality to create regulatory-grade real-world-based oncology, which will support our oncology brands moving forward, particularly in peer discussions. So what peers are looking for, I don't think it's that different from regulators. What they both want is they want real-world evidence decision-making, but they need that data to be credible. And I think that's where the reticence a little bit has been from peers in the past. But hopefully we've reached an inflection point now where the type of data that we can generate through new tools, technology, access to data will be to the point where we can create that regulatory data that's so required. So let's talk about that, whether and how a payer cared about the quality of the data. I'm going to have a slightly different experience with the payer interactions that we've had is that, is it published in a peer-reviewed journal? If it is, okay, let's look at it, and then they judge it like any other data point. And then sometimes you'd see usually pretty good acceptance of something generated by Optum Health or sometimes United in that their database just being better than others and that data set being generally acceptable as long as it otherwise looked like a good enough scientific paper then they follow it. I think that the challenge I've seen with rare diseases is that they're rare. So it's hard to get enough data on any one diagnostic code when we're talking about something that's a few hundred patients in the U.S. That's what I've seen. It sounds as though generating nonetheless regulatory quality data in the real world setting can lead to a substantial increase in your market cap or in your ability to get acquired, which I think would be extraordinarily interesting to any small rare disease company that is looking to generate real-world data. I want to give you, Michelle, a chance to respond either to that or to the previous follow-up from Alistair. Well, I think that what some of the FDA's guidance has done is to move us in this direction where there's a little bit more sharing of that information. So you can actually have your health economists talk to each other so that the manufacturers can take their models to the payers. They can show them the underlying assumptions. And maybe the insurers can start thinking about using similar models or they can have those conversations where you start to eventually move in a direction where we're all going to be looking at data that we can all trust. If we're moving in that direction, I think eventually we'll be in a place where there are conversations where regulators, payers, manufacturers are all using the same data sets and data sets in the same way. Alistair, when we talk about the EU, that may be very different from the U.S. experience, which is where I also have more of my own personal experience with payers, where bringing a budget impact model to a payer, there are some line items that they're very interested in and that they might find credible. The bottom line number, they very seldom find to be credible. They're very dismissive, frankly. Yeah, that's what you say, whatever (laughs) sort of answer. And we'll look at our own. I found that the budget impact models for the U.S. tend to support more than anything else just interest on their side in perhaps making their own calculations. Is that fundamentally different in rare diseases in the EU. And feel free to challenge me on my overall, I want to say almost cynical dismissal of what I've seen payers do. 
So let me start answering that question by talking a little bit around your first point around the use of real-world evidence for rare disease in general, both in the US and in Europe. Um, again, I think the first thing to say is from a regulatory perspective, I think we've seen some very encouraging signals about that usage. So there have been several recent examples of approvals being given for rare disease medications based on very slim clinical packages but with support of real-world evidence packages. A couple of examples of that would be for a Belumab in Merkel-Bell carcinoma where they had only one clinical study and that was an entire clinical package for a real-world supported study that talked about that. And another good example would be Ibrantrude. So we've certainly seen examples of regulators in general moving into that space. For payers, I would say it is more distinct, as you said, across the US and Europe. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is historical. I think in Europe in general, there's been a longer established use of supplemental data to support drug applications. So most people will be aware, particularly in Europe, there's a multi-stage approval process before you actually finally get reimbursed for a, for a medication. So although you may get your regulatory approval, you've still got several hurdles to go through in individual countries to get reimbursement. And that process can be very much generated driven by real-world evidence to support those peer discussions in Europe. So I think there's just been a longer process in Europe of having that higher hurdle to get over in terms of reimbursements than has in the US. So I think there's perhaps a more sophisticated process present in Europe. I think the other thing that lends itself to Europe is that there are quite often larger data sets provided because of the types of organisations we have in Europe. So larger governmental institutions with care bodies, for example, rather than perhaps what we see in the US with the smaller data sets. So even in rare disease, this can mean it can be easier to pull together the types of data sets for Europe that would be required. So I think there are some differences that we see in Europe against the US, but Michelle, I don't know if that reflects some of the observations you've seen and some of the changing dynamics that you think we're seeing in the peer environment in the US. I think that as manufacturers are embracing the use of real-world evidence more and more in the development process, and the FDA is approving drugs at a faster and faster clip, a lot of the responsibility falls on the payers now to look at that data more closely, to ask a lot more questions, to make sure that what they're being asked to cover is worth it. So I do think that that real-world evidence certainly is going to play an increasingly important role in helping payers make those kinds of decisions. Certainly looking at how the drug performs in the real world and whether it's living up to the promises of clinical data is going to become even more important as we move forward. Yeah, and I do see that, Michelle. I do see that in the U.S. in cases where the initial clinical data were, shall we say, less than thrilling. (laughs) where the data that were used for approval were highly controversial, didn't get a full recommended approval. Nonetheless, the drug was approved and then payers said, for a rare disease, this is not the norm. The payers said, yeah, not so much. I don't think I'm going to cover this or I'm going to make it so difficult to cover and to get approval for it that it might as well not be covered. In those cases, supplementing with additional data from the real world seems not just a good idea, but required. Is that what you're basically alluding to for the interest on the payer side? Oh, certainly. You're also seeing more parties get involved in the process. I think patient advocates, I mean, we've seen a lot of parents really getting involved on the advocacy side, step up to participate in the clinical development process, but then also to put some pressure on payers to cover some of these new therapies. Some of them are very pricey, 
And I think we're seeing some of that pressure. I think payers may be a little concerned about more and more of these drugs coming out at this high price point and how they're going to respond to the pressure they're seeing from patient advocates, parents, people who are really looking to take advantage of these new therapies. And I think, Michelle, that's an interesting development that we're seeing in the U.S., but I'd be interested to see how also Europe responds to this. An example for me would be as we move more into the gene therapy area, this is where I think life is not easy for payers, right? So let's be very fair to them here. Life is not easy when you're trying to put value on medications. Now, I give you the gene therapy space where you can basically have a curative medicine that could be given to patients maybe just once in their life, even that gives them a curative effect for the rest of their life. First of all, how do you value that product or price you put on that? But secondly, if you have a medication that may last patient for 50 years, but it's given once as part of a life. How do you pay for that? Do you pay for it all up front on the day they're given the therapy, or do you pay it up for the 50 years like you would for many other things? And also, what part do you do through that intervening period to ensure that there is value for medical? And that's where I think real world evidence will play into this. So we're hearing quite a lot of innovative thoughts around this, and I would say being led in the US mostly around the type of ways you would pay for a type of therapy like that, but also the type of real world evidence you need to support that process throughout the duration of a patient's life. So I think these are very interesting new areas that obviously weren't challenges beforehand, but have become challenges as these types of medications have become available. I don't know, Michelle, if you've got much experience in that space at the moment, but if there's anything in that area that you could share of interest. Well, I could certainly tell you that in the U.S. right now, the government is aware of the competency to use real-world evidence in payment decisions. There is some bipartisan consensus in Congress around the potential for using real-world evidence in coverage and pricing decisions. Right now, there are a lot of proposals being debated around drug pricing and putting downward pressure on pricing, lowering out-of-pocket expenses for Medicare beneficiaries. The Senate Finance Committee looked at a bill that includes some provisions that would actually provide the opportunity for state Medicaid programs to use some value-based arrangements and risk-sharing agreements as part of um, financing for gene therapy. It would essentially allow the states to go into agreements with manufacturers where they would look at paying for gene therapy over a series of installments over time. Part of that's going to include provisions where if the drug does not perform as expected, that the Medicaid program, the government would not pay the full amount, maybe be reduced or they wouldn't pay at all. In order to make those determinations, you're going to have to use real-world evidence to collect that data and make those decisions. I think that this is really interesting dynamics in the U.S. around whether it's this piece around payment over time for gene therapies, whether it's, as Michelle was discussing, this kind of outcomes-based approach to whether you demonstrate the value of your drug or not. I think the other thing that we're hearing, which I think is quite interesting, Michelle, and I don't know if you've got any insight into this, is I know there's been some discussions around international reference pricing where there's a thought around trying to get some better average pricing of therapies across the key wealthy nations. So this sort of international pricing index, I think, would be a different dynamic than we're seeing at the moment in terms of how you demonstrate value and to try and create that uniformity across the globe. Um, so again, I think that's a very interesting dynamic that payers will have to start to think about how that affects the way they make decisions and so forth. So I'm not sure how much traction this actually has got yet in the U.S., but it's, I certainly think it's an interesting proposal. That side of the international reference pricing, my read on that, Alistair, I don't know if you read it the same way, but my read on it, that it was an ask for higher prices from other countries to match more of the U.S. price, not uh, an averaging of prices. Am I reading it the same way you read it? 
I think Jeff's a little bit on the nose with that assessment, though. I do think that that's at least in part for this kind of policy. And it definitely has some traction. I think the House is going to vote on a bill probably this week or next week that includes provisions to set up international reference pricing in the U.S. And the administration right now is looking at potentially introducing a proposed rule, which we might even see this month as well, that would introduce a demonstration program on international reference pricing for some of the drugs in the Medicare Part B program. I do think these are serious proposals under consideration right now. Whether or not we'll see them this year, I don't know. I'm personally a little skeptical. But I do think if we don't see it this year, I do think it'll come back around in two years when we're talking about drug pricing again under a new Congress. Yeah, but I think what all these things demonstrate is a continued story about pressure on pricing and the abilities of governmental agencies to try and contain costs as best as possible can. And I think we've seen global healthcare spending in the last five years. I think it's increased 35%. So despite cost containment measures, we still continue to see the spend in healthcare increasing relatively significantly. Right? All of this for me says that that pressure for cost containment is going to continue. And in that environment, the ability or the need to demonstrate the value of your drugs only increases. And this is where real-world evidence really plays its part. Because although the regulators have got greater interest in real-world evidence, ultimately the regulators are still mostly concerned around the safety. The reward evidence is to support these subsequent conversations around the value of that the drug. And in this environment where we're discussing these type of proposals and initiatives, I think the ability to be able to demonstrate the value of your drug against others by the use of reward evidence is going to become increasingly important as we move forward. A last question then. This one I think is for you, Alistair. If we've established, and I think we have, that real-world evidence has to be of high enough quality and it will give potentially a higher market value for you or put a higher acquisition price tag on you as just evidence for by acquisitions. Regulators are going to care and now payers are going to care. How do we get that high-quality real-world evidence, not just any real-world evidence, but the real-world evidence that actually does something? Jeff, I wish I had a magic wand answer to you for this, but I think this is one of the key questions that as an industry we're trying to solve right now. So again, go back to something I mentioned earlier. The initial premise is here, we have to accept that the quality of real-world data in the recent past has been rightly subject to some scrutiny and rigor. I think quite a lot of claims data in particular has been either incomplete or inaccurate in some cases and non-validated. And we need to move from that position to having regulatory-grade data. Now, I think there are a couple of things happening which are helping that. First of all, I think there is greater access data. There are a number of mechanisms that have been put in place to make access to data easier. And there are a number of new initiatives being rolled out that will, again, create the ability to access patient data. But I think also the technology to access data is just far greater than it was five, ten years ago, which means that we can troll a lot more data very quickly. We can also analyze that data much better and also more quickly. So I think that greater access data, but also the analytical tools that lie behind that to turn that data into proper evidence, that area has grown significantly and we're beginning to see, again, some significant technology going into this part. I still think there's some way to go, though. I think it's still quite a fragmented industry, and I think there's a combination of both governmental into this as well as commercial organisations. We're still feeling our way a little bit around how is this really going to work? Where really is the data that we need to have the access to? What are the best analytical tools that allow this data to be properly analysed and be of the right veracity for regulators and peers? But we're certainly somewhere along the line with that. Um, we actually discussed in the previous podcast here, I think, you know, here we've got a number of strategic partners that we work with to get access to that data and to get access to the right analytics. And in discussions that we have with our sponsors, 
we think we're on the road to be able to answer that ultimate question about can you get regulated rates rewarded. I think the answer is at the moment, yes, we can in certain instances, in certain areas. I think if you were asking the same question two or three years' time, I think I'd be much more confident about the breadth of that regulated rate rewarded and we can now get. Michelle, before you go, can you just tell us what's the name of your white paper and we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Sure, Jeff. It's Real World Value, Advancing Payer Understanding of Real World Evidence in Rare Disease. Michelle, Alistair, thank you so much for joining me on the Cineos Health Podcast. Thank you, Jeff. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Jeff. That's all for today's episode of the Cineos Health Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. If you want to talk through a hard decision you're making at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast at cineoshealth.com. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For access to more future-focused, actionable life sciences insights, visit the Cineos Health Insights Hub at insightshub.health. Cineos Health, shortening the distance from lab to life.